we have been looking at God's wisdom in Solomon. And as you know, Solomon was wealthier, he was wiser, more powerful than any other man of his day. And as such, he was uniquely qualified to view life from a perspective that few people have ever had. His wealth and his power gave him the ability to make all of his fantasies a reality. And his wisdom gave him the ability to put that reality into perspective. And so Solomon's first task in the book of Ecclesiastes was to examine pleasure. And to do that, he embraced five different elements of pleasure, all with his eyes wide open. This is how he describes his task in Ecclesiastes 2. He says this. He says, <coughs> excuse me, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of men to do under heaven during the few days of their life. In verse 8, he says, I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers and a harem as well, the delights of the heart of man. Well, Solomon lists five different areas of pleasure that he is examining analytically. He has laughter, he has wine, he has folly, he has amusement, amusement and sexuality. And so far, we've looked at four of those five elements, and we've seen that laughter, in his view, is, is really not the genuine, healthy laughter of a good joke or something like that. Instead, it's cynicism. We've seen that wine and folly are the distractions from real living that they actually are. We've seen that amusement steals our communication, our conviction, and our commitment to God as well. And so this morning, we're going to look at this fifth pleasure that Solomon examines, and that is sexuality. Solomon says, I acquired men and women singers and a harem as well. Well, the harem that Solomon is, is speaking of is what ultimately destroyed his kingdom. Now, you've got to remember, Solomon is, is writing as an old man who is looking back at his life. And he's looking back with lots of regret to the foolish things that he did in spite of the wisdom that he had been given. And an illicit, illicit sexual appetite is what proved to be Solomon's undoing. And this is how 1 Kings describes it. It says this. It says, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. And Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Moloch, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. 
And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Solomon had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. I mean, you see, in Solomon's day, agreements and treaties, they were sealed by giving the king's daughter in marriage. And so every time Solomon secured an ally, he gained another, quote, king's daughter in marriage. Hence, he had 700 wives by royal birth. And that was bad enough because God had clearly forbade it. I mean, speaking of kings, God says in Deuteronomy 17, and he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Well, Solomon did both. Um, he acquired excessive silver and gold and wives. Now, that was politically disobedient. The concubines, though, they, they, they weren't about politics. They were about sex. And it's there where Solomon's life fell apart. Sex became a driving force that led him into places that he could never have imagined. As verse 4 says, For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. And if you doubt sexuality has the power to enslave, just consider what it did to Solomon. I mean, it took the wisest man who ever was, a man who, who sought to honor God by leading Israel through a time of peace and prosperity while he built God's own temple. And it turned him into a pagan animal. Someone willing to offer worship to demonic monsters who demanded the human sacrifice of babies roasted alive. I mean, Solomon's wife so changed his heart that he, quote, built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Moloch, the abomination of the Ammonites on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And we learn about what that's all about in Jeremiah, who describes this worship. It says, they built the high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnom to offer up their sons and daughters to Moloch. Though I did not command them, nor did it enter into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. So how could you go from seeking to, to, to worship God and rule with great wisdom to offering live babies as human sacrifice? Well, we have a term for that today. We use the term sexual addiction. You know, God was a lot more blunt in verse 4. He just said, for when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And as we read these Old Testament accounts, Again, we have to remember the context. You see, in Ecclesiastes, Solomon, he's, he's reflecting back on, on a life of vanity, a life of, of emptiness. And by God's grace, he's, he's come back from the madness that had gripped him, but it's left him permanently scarred. He's already told us how, how empty laughter and wine and folly and amusement were, and now he's telling us what seems like many a young man's fantasy. And it just doesn't deliver what it presents itself as. 
I mean, how many people can honestly say what Solomon was able to say? He said, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I mean, Solomon was one of the few people who actually realized that fantasy and had failed him miserably. He said, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. And so this morning, I, I want to look at the empty promise of illicit sex, whether it's premarital, extramarital, or something Solomon never could have imagined, and that's internet porn. In Solomon's case, you know, we, we can't even discuss pre- or extramarital sex because Solomon's marital situation was such a train wreck that we really have no point of reference. I mean, we can't even accuse Solomon of extramarital affairs because every woman he wanted, he just married. And yet he tells us the experience was as meaningless as chasing after the wind. I mean, Solomon, for all of his wisdom, could not see the wisdom of God's boundaries around sex. And yet he knew all about them. I mean, they'd been established long, long ago in the Garden of Eden before the fall. Genesis 2 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Well, there it is. There's to be one husband and one wife equaling one flesh. That's what it was supposed to be. Well, Solomon missed that mark by a factor of a thousand. I mean, he was part of a long line of Old Testament patriarchs who missed the mark when it came to marrying but one woman. But that raises the obvious question. Then why does the Old Testament seem to condone multiple wives? I mean, after all, Abraham had two. He had Sarah and Hagar. And Jacob had two. He had Rachel and Leah. And David had many wives. Solomon had many more. So what's up with that? Well, first you have to understand there's a profound difference between condoning something and supporting it. You know, the United States government condones the sale and use of tobacco, and yet one can hardly say, based on the commercials and the warnings and the regulations against it, that they support it. They simply recognize that making tobacco illegal would only make a bad situation worse. And God sometimes, for mercy's sake, allows something that he truly hates in order to accomplish a greater good. I mean, God hated having to watch us murder his son. But he allowed the cross, knowing that it was our only hope. In Malachi 6, in Malachi 2.16, God says, I hate divorce. However, in the New Testament, in Matthew 19, Jesus says, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. I mean, God hates divorce. But he permitted the hard-hearted Israelites to divorce their wives because the alternative was far, far worse. It was to kill them. It was of God's mercy that he allowed it. But it's not what God desired. God toler tolerated multiple marriages as a mercy to a culture which treated unmarried females worse than cattle. I mean, to be unmarried in that society was to be adrift with no safety net whatsoever. To have no husband, to have no father, was to have no protector and no provider. 
And slavery and prostitution and servitude was often a woman's fate. And so God, again, for mercy's sake, was willing to tolerate the protection that even multiple marriages provided. I mean, he condoned it. He never supported it. And, you know, in addition, you could also argue that the Old Testament patriarchs are always portrayed honestly, warts and all. There's never an attempt to cover up their sins. You know, Moses committed murder. Abraham was a serial liar. Jacob was a deceiver. David was an adulterer. I mean, they're all presented openly and honestly in Scripture as, as broken vessels that God chooses to use. And Solomon and his wives was no exception. I mean, it's been pointed out that there's, there's only two figures in the entire Old Testament whom God calls blameless, and that was Noah and Job. And both of them were married to one wife. That's what God designed. And that's what he blesses. But you know, God also designed sexuality. And his design for that has been under a withering attack for the last century. And the attack has been led by two men and their followers. One is Charles Darwin and the other is Hugh Hefter. And together they have managed to recreate sexuality in the very same mold that Solomon experienced as uncommitted, semi-autonomous coupling, primarily intended for pleasure itself. I'll be the first one to tell you, is, this works great for dogs and cats and rabbits because God has designed their pleasure-seeking to result in more and varied dogs and cats and rabbits. But it works miserably for people because God never designed us that way. I mean, Darwin's theory of evolution has convinced millions that a dog, a cat, a rabbit, a person, they're all just bags of chemicals basically assembled by time and chance, answerable to no one. And according to Darwin's theory, the only value that truly matters is survival. And that goes to the fittest, as defined by your species, out-reproducing your competitors. According to Darwinian logic, the more females I impregnate, the greater my fitness. It's then my genes that go forward, my gene pool survival increases. Again, great for animals, but for people, not so great. You know, a while back, I, I saw Dennis Rodman's Hall of Fame induction speech. Rodman, if you don't know, he's a professional basketball player. He's famous for a very flamboyant and deeply, deeply troubled lifestyle. And he used the occasion of his induction in the Hall of Fame to give a brutally honest speech where he talked about his absentee father. And he talked about him as the source of his pain as an adult. And he mentioned that his father had fathered 46 other siblings in addition to himself, and that his father never bothered to even say hello. Now think about it. Mr. Rodman Sr. has done a spectacular job of making himself more fit than most according to the logic of evolution. I mean, think about it. His genes now re reside in 47 children. His species is prospering. His species is advancing. His children, not so much. Like I said, it works well for dogs, cats, and rabbits. Well, why not for people? Why not ask Dennis Rodman or his 46 siblings? 
You see, Darwin's view of how sexuality works is, is perfectly appropriate if you're an animal. If, however, you are a totally unique creature created by God to bear his image, you are far more than that. And sexuality developed within the context of a loving family is what God has designed for us. But understand, it's a model that our culture is trying to deconstruct by trying to redefine the rules. And if you're trying to take your cues about sexuality from our culture, well, you're kind of stuck right in the middle. I mean, we're a culture that has rejected God's view, but it still can't bring itself to fully embrace Darwin's. And so we kind of muddle about somewhere in the middle. I mean, we're not prudes, we're not libertines. We know unbridled, unfettered sexuality is absolutely a recipe for disaster. But we can't quite bring ourselves to impose any real restrictions on what we now accept as an inalienable right to pleasure. And the link that is missing is that the link that makes sensuality and sexuality make sense is God. See, absent a transcendent authority that is a God who rules, what possible reason can the world give for not engaging in premarital or extramarital sex? You might get a disease. Now, we've got precautions. We've got drugs. You might get pregnant. Well, that's supposed to be a Darwinian blessing. But even so, we've got pills. We've got devices. We've got abortion. Which, if you're nothing but a randomly produced bag of chemicals, that's no big deal. You see, if you are a committed evolutionist and your son and daughter says, tell me why I shouldn't have sex. What do you say? And if you say it's wrong, how do you say why? You see, in years past, society and culture did the heavy lifting when it came to those kind of moral issues. And you could simply say because it's wrong and it was basically understood. But today, our culture absolutely refuses to say that because we don't believe it. Because the religion of Darwinian evolution renders chastity meaningless. Animals don't practice chastity. I'm an animal. Why should I? I mean, that's the logic, isn't it? I mean, couple that logic with the only moral imperative that our culture still supports, and that is, thou shalt have no moral imperatives, and you have a recipe for disaster. And if there's any rule that cuts across all segments of society today, it's that no one has the right to tell anyone that anything having to do with sexuality is wrong. And the best that you could hope for is not the word wrong, rather it's the word risky. You know, sexual promiscuity is no longer ever identified as such. It's now called risky behavior. Well, what if you eliminate the risk? I mean, is it then still wrong? You see, when all the rules of sexuality come down to biological risk, you've already lost the battle. Because the enemy's just going to invent ways to degrade us sexually without any biological risk. Case in point. This is according to Fox News. <clears throat> Quote, it isn't grades, sports teams, or bullying that have parents worried this back-to-school season. According to a recent survey, parents' top concern for their children this school year is sexting, the practice of sending racy and inappropriate texts and picture messages via cell phone. 
No biological risk at all. Nearly half of the parents polled 49% listed their top concern as sexting, followed by text messaging at 33%. In addition, 49% of respondents said their child had received an inappropriate text message or picture, and 21% reported their child has received a sext. See, if you don't believe in a transcendent authority, if you don't believe in someone or something bigger than yourself who actually defines for you what is right and wrong, when risk no longer defines behavioral boundaries, well, I can tell you that the argument for chastity dies right then and there. And there is no cogent reason for not having sex. But if you do believe that we're answerable to a God who is bigger than we are, I, I can tell you, God forbid I should say it, it's wrong because God, a transcendent authority, forbids it. I mean, 1 Corinthians 6 says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. See, God isn't saying here, hey, gee, watch out, this is risky behavior. I mean, he's calling it what it is, and forgive me for saying so. He says it's sin, and he forbids it. And for a huge segment of society living sexual lives just like Solomon did, such a commandment seems ludicrous. Folks say, it's my body. And I say, says who? I mean, how did you get here? And what did you have to do with it? I mean, did you choose how long you're planning to live and where you're going to exit this moral plane? I mean, you and I control virtually none of those answers, and yet somehow we all claim authorship and sovereignty over our lives. We have nothing to say about who we are, where we are, how we got here, and yet we have plenty to say about our rights once we find ourselves conscious of who we are. God says he owns our bodies because he made us. And that gives him certain rights that we don't think he's entitled to. And what if he forbids fornication? I know that's a bad word. We don't say that. Not because he's a cosmic killjoy, but because he knows more about us than we think we know. He knows that sexual sins are like radioactivity. That you can be exposed to them over and over again and think your experience has no negative consequences. You can ignore the warnings and come away from them thinking they were all a big bluff. That's because the damage doesn't show itself like a cut or a burn or an abrasion. See, it's a damage that buries itself sometimes for years. As Pastor Tim Keller said, sin is a force that always has consequences, as he puts it. He says, when you do sin, sin always does you. We just don't believe it when it comes to sexual sins. And when it comes to issues such as premarital sex, our culture has so thoroughly abandoned the romantic notion that it's just plain wrong. That just doesn't work for us anymore. And what is just plain wrong today is saying something or anything is just plain wrong. You know, that's judgmental, and that's the only sin our culture still views with horror. 
you know, many, many years ago, Francis Schaeffer pointed out how it is that societies have these kinds of, of, of moral bearings and how they lose them. He pointed out that at one time, folks knew their God because they knew their Bible. And over time, less and less people began to know Scripture. And as they ceased to know Scripture, they ceased to know the whys and the wherefores of how God operates. But they still cling to their understandings that were passed on to them by their parents. They have what Schaefer calls a romantic notion of right and wrong. They, they, they know something's wrong because they've been taught that it's wrong. They just really don't know why. And when that generation meets a younger generation that demands to know more, that wants to know why it's just plain wrong, well, that generation is oftentimes at a loss for words. That's where this generation is today. They have been failed by our generation because they don't even know why out-of-bound sex is wrong. The result is our entire culture is on the same sexual binge that Solomon was on. So why is premarital sex wrong? Well, the number one answer is because God, who is a transcendent authority bigger than we are, says so. But we also know some of the practical reasons as well. I mean, we can still frame the issue in terms of the damage that we know it does. And for example, dating and courtship is a time to get to know a potential life partner. And that's no simple task. You know, we are complex creatures. We have a need to know and be known in body, soul, and spirit. And of those three, despite what sex ed teaches, the body is by far the easiest to learn. I mean, birds do it, and bees do it, and so do dogs and cats. They don't require instruction manuals. Somehow they manage. For centuries, the lessons learned in knowing the body began on a wedding night. And the time before that, the time spent in courtship, was supposed to be time spent getting to know and be known, not in body, but in soul and spirit. And courting men, finding out who your partner is as a person and who you, who, are, who you are as a child of God relating to that person. Now, if you leapfrog over learning to know your partner's soul and spirit because your time is spent getting to know your partner's bodies, you'll find out oftentimes after the honeymoon is over, you may have married a complete stranger. Because the physical, that is the body, easily overwhelms the soul and the spirit. And when the physical defines the parameters of a premarital relationship, most, most, much of the growth and insight you get into your partner's soul and spirit ends as well. It just gets overwhelmed by the physical. I think of Solomon. I mean, he had literally 1,000 sexual partners that he engaged in risky behavior with. I mean, how's that for a silly word? And the women that he bedded, they were the same complex creatures of body, soul, and spirit that all human beings are. But they were all reduced by Solomon to one-dimensional pieces of meat whose sole purpose was to satisfy him sexually. And, you know, I'll be the first one to say that that works fine if you're breeding dogs and cats and rabbits because they don't function in body, soul, and spirit. They don't need to. They're animals. But we are not animals. And we're called to a different standard by a God that evolution seeks to eliminate. 
And again, absent God and his authority, many people have chosen to live according to Darwin's worldview. And they've cast off those puritanical restraints and gleefully embraced what I call radioactivity. They have proudly proclaimed that the Bible and God are only bluffing. And they have a champion. Their champion for the last 50 years now is, is a man named Hugh Hefner. Before died a few years back. His Playboy philosophy championed recreational sex as something unique and different, a revolutionary approach to human sexuality. I don't think he ever read Ecclesiastes. I mean, at least he would have known what Solomon said over and over again in that book. He said, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is and what will, be, what will be and what has been done is what will be done and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. You see, Solomon embraced the Playboy philosophy thousands of years before you Hefner even thought of it. And it was Solomon who said, it is wearisome, it is empty, it is meaningless. But he also said something else in that text that is the key to Hugh Hefner's empire and the monster that he unleashed. Solomon said, the eye never has enough of seeing. Those words made Hugh Hefner a wealthy man. He made pornography palatable and popular. It's the internet that now makes it ubiquitous. I mean, it's literally everywhere. I mentioned this before, just trying to get statistics for a message like this is a dangerous task because if, if you Google internet porn, you have to walk through a swamp just to get any information. This is what CNN said. It said, quote, Gone are the furtive visits to seedy theaters and the fear of being outed as some perverted purchaser of porn. Now all you need to indulge anonymously in the XXX world is your trusty personal computer and a good connection to the internet. They go on to say it is an enormous business. There's lots of money to be made. And Sean Calder, an analyst with Nielsen Net Ratings, which estimated that 34 million visited porn sites in August, about one in four internet users in the United States. The average user is looking at 121 pages, going back six times, and spending an hour and seven minutes every month looking at adult-related material, Caldor said. All that browsing has caused the number of pornography web pages to soar during the past years with over 1.3 million sites serving up about 260 million pages of erotic content according to a study released in September by the Seattle, Washington-based web filtering company N2H2. That was in 2003. I mean, today, technology has done the same for pornography as it's done for all amusement. You know, last time I said the average person has more choices for amusement than Solomon with all of his wealth and power could ever have even imagined. And that same person can now have the virtual version of what Solomon had. Uncommitted, semi-autonomous, pleasure-only relationships with one-dimensional fantasies of what Solomon actually experienced. Now, for Solomon, it was empty, it was meaningless. For millions today, it's not only empty, it's costly, it's destructive, and it's highly addictive. See, Solomon was right. The eye never does have enough of seeing, especially when it comes to pornography. 
I mean, like alcohol and other drugs, the amount of pornography needed to produce the high is always growing. And so, too, the images have to grow progressively more and more degrading and debasing in order to get the same high. And when that happens, many folks are addicted. Wired Magazine reporting on a Senate subcommittee meeting said, quote, internet pornography is the new crack cocaine. Understand, this is not the church speaking. This is the secular world. I quote Wired Magazine, quote, Marianne Layden, co-director of the Sexual Trauma and Psychopathology Program at the University of Pennsylvania Center for Cognitive Therapy, called porn, quote, the most concerning thing to psychological health that I know of existing today. She says, the internet is a perfect drug delivery system because you are anonymous, aroused, and have, a role, and have role models for these behaviors, Layden said. To have a drug pumped into your house 24-7, free, and children know how to use it better than grown-ups know how to use it, it's a perfect delivery system. If we want to have a whole generation of young addicts who will never have the drug out of their mind. Pornography addicts had a more difficult time recovering from their addiction than cocaine addicts since coke users can get the drug out of their system, but pornographic images stay in the brain forever, Layden said. <clears throat> I mean, you have to understand, this is the voice of the secular psychological community. This is not the church. And those who avoid addiction still have the devastating effect that porn has on their marriages. I mean, you see, Solomon had his pick of all the women in his kingdom. If he tired of one, there was always another. They, they were real, they were beautiful, but only a king could have them. Well, the internet is far more egalitarian. Now, anyone with a computer and a modem can have airbrushed, pixelated perfection with the click of a mouse. But human beings aren't airbrushed, they're not pixelated, they're not perfect. And real life and real marriage can't compete with virtual sexual perfection. As feminist writer Naomi Wolf writes, quote, how can a real woman possibly compete with the cyber vision of perfection, downloadable and extinguishable at will, who comes, so to speak, utterly submissive and tailored to the consumer's least specification? Well, the fact is she can't. And countless marriages are dissolving because of it. I mean, the amazing thing is that even the non-Christian world is aware that internet porn is a monster. Take it from me, Naomi Wolf is no friend to conservative Christians. But she sees it. CNN also reported this, quote, the recent article in New York Magazine contained interviews with men who said they were hooked on internet porn. Quote, dude, all my friends are so obsessed with internet porn that they can't sleep with their girlfriends unless they act like porn stars a 26-year-old businessman told the article's author. That's freedom. That's sexual liberation. You see, the enemy of our souls is an equal opportunity in slaver, and Christian and non-Christian alike all are welcome to surrender their lives, their wills, their money, and their marriages to the new altar and its virtual goddesses. Because Solomon's got nothing on us. Even worse, he had Chemosh and Moloch that he offered live babies to. We have Darwin and Hefner, and make no mistake about it, we offer human sacrifice as well. We just do it at an abortion clinic rather than a temple. 
And Solomon's guilt and emptiness, it's ours for the taking. So what do we do about it? How do we avoid the pitfalls that so many have fallen in? And if we have fallen, how do we get out? Well, we start with Romans 13, 12, which says this. It says, the night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify, gratify its desires. There it is. Make no provision for the flesh. In other words, don't make it easy to fall. I mean, if you're young and you're dating, make no provision for your flesh. Enjoy getting to know your partner's spirit and soul in public places and avoid alone time in private places. It's not rocket science. It's common sense. You know, when we counsel folks, we often speak about firewalls. A firewall is just something you build to keep from catching fire. You know, oftentimes folks say, I I got caught up in the heat of the moment. I didn't have the strength to resist. They say, okay. Let's find a place where you do have the strength and build the firewall there. I mentioned before my own experience with pornography. I was in college in those days. And in those days, it was penthouse and playboy. The house that I lived in had subscriptions to both. You know, when I got saved, I found I couldn't get those images out of my head. I would go to worship. I would go to pray. I would go to communion. And there were those images. You think God conjured those images up? I prayed and I prayed and I sought God's grace and in time those images disappeared. And I learned then about firewalls. And I've mentioned this before, but this, this was my habit. I said, if a store had Playboy or Penthouse or any kind of magazine like that in an aisle five, I wouldn't go to four through six just so I wouldn't get anywhere near that because I thought that's radioactive. I'm not going near it. That's what a firewall does. Now, I've met with lots of folks about issues like this, folks who are literally losing the battle to Internet porn. The first thing that I, I tell them is that sins like this flourish in the darkness, but they die when you bring them into the light. Talk to us. Bring it into the light. You will find sin's power diminishing. We will not condemn you because Christ doesn't condemn anyone who is willing to confess his sin. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I've been at this a long time. I've been doing this for many, many years. And I can guarantee you, you cannot shock me. Been there, done that. One very potent way to build a firewall, to, to make no provision for the, for the flesh, is through accountability. That's letting somebody else know of your struggle, someone you can be accountable to. I mean, if internet porn has captured you, back up to where you still have strength and make a firewall there. And it might mean getting rid of your computer. But you have to ask yourself, is your freedom from slavery worth it? I mean, for others, it may be as simple as as moving the computer to a more public place, maybe enlisting the aid of an internet filter, some type of accountability website such as CovenantEyes.com. For a small fee, this service will hold you accountable 
to someone else by sending them monthly reports on what you're viewing. So your accountability partner receives a monthly breakdown of the sites you visited rated by their sexual contact, content. Then CovenantEyes.com has lots of testimonials of folks who said, just knowing I was accountable gave me the strength to defeat it. It all comes under the heading of make no provision for the flesh. And you know, a number of years ago, I was discussing this aspect with, with one of my sons. <laughs> he protested and he said, you know, I, I get the feeling you don't trust me. And I looked at him and said, you're absolutely right. Of course I don't trust you. I said, guess what? When it comes to this stuff, I don't trust myself. I pointed out that when I counsel members of the opposite sex, I always try to make sure that someone else is present. And if I make no provision for the flesh, why shouldn't my son? So how about you this morning? I mean, are you feeling what Solomon felt when he embraced the pleasures of illicit sex? I mean, thanks to the technology of amusement, what was a pitfall that only kings like Solomon could fall into is now virtually available to anyone with access to the Internet. I mean, Solomon had it all. And he said it was empty, it was meaningless, it was a chasing after the wind. He found that sexual pleasure, like all other pleasures removed from God as the source of pleasure, are like cotton candy. And you know what cotton candy is like? It looks like a solid brick. And you grab a piece and you put it in your mouth and it just dissolves and it evaporates right in front of you. Which is exactly what the promise of pornography is like. And if you've been sucked in by that cotton candy mode, God still promises you a way out. God left heaven itself and he came to earth as a man just like us and then he lived the life that we were supposed to live. The difference being he lived it perfectly. And then he went to the cross to lay down that life as a perfect payment, his righteousness for our sin. And having done all of that, he's not about to leave us in this battle with no resources. So if you feel helpless to fight because the monster is just too big and too strong, God says you are mistaken. And he says so in Scripture. This is what he says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. He says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. If God is speaking to you in that scripture, speak to me. Speak to one of the elders. God promises you he will provide a way of escape. Just let us help you find it. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you and thank you that there is an alternative to the vision that Charles Darwin and Hugh Hefner have of what human sexuality is supposed to be. <clears throat> I thank you for who you are. I thank you for the gift of sexuality that you've given to us. I thank you for uh, giving us boundaries and giving us the ability to understand what happens when those boundaries are trashed. I just pray that you would give each and every person sitting here today, anyone who is locked in that darkness, Lord, that you would give them the courage to seek out any one of us and just say, I need help. Lord, speak to their hearts. Give them grace. Give them wisdom. Give them power. Give them courage, I pray in Jesus' name.